0: Welcome back on today's Unqualified Opinions from Masari. I speak with CoinList president and co-founder Andy Bromber. We cover a lot of grounds. We talk about the token economy, we talk about private placements, we talk about the wall of ICO money uh, that is going to hit the market at some point in the next couple of years and what that might impact uh, on the uh, private and public market side. And of course we talk about compliance and data standards in the crypto economy. So wide ranging conversation, with uh, one of the more impressive organizations and uh, co-founders. You'll enjoy it. But first, we're gonna have a quick word from our sponsors. Masari's Unqualified Opinions is brought to you by our sponsors at Token Tax and Token Soft. Taxes suck, we all know it, and crypto taxes are even worse. I know because I spent days last year trying unsuccessfully to piece together the mess that was my crypto tax return. And I needed a platform that could pull from the variety of exchanges, wallets, and other crypto sources I used to help identify cost basis and actual gains and losses for the year. Token Tax saved me. Not only do they have an intuitive platform, they also have excellent customer support from real CPAs. No one loves paying taxes, but with the tax deadline just one month away in the US, you can go to TokenTax.co right now to get started and save time and money on your taxes. Issuing a digital security on the blockchain is a lot of work, particularly on the compliance side of things, at least if you want to do it right. TokenSoft works with top legal and financial experts to make sure your digital assets are secure and compliant. The company leads the market in providing tools to support tax banking and securities regulations for digital asset issuers. To learn more about how TokenSoft and their new Knox wallet can help you with issuance management and custody of digital assets or securities, you can visit tokensoft.io. Or follow them on Twitter at TokenSoft Inc. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Usari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis, your host at 2 Bit Idiot, and this is sponsored by Token Tax and TokenSoft. Uh, today, I'm with a buddy of mine that I've known basically since you first got into the industry, I think, and me, if if we're being honest. Um, Andy Bromberg from CoinList, co-founder and president of CoinList. Uh, We're gonna talk about CoinList, digital securities, we're gonna talk about uh, token team compliance and and ICO compliance in the U.S. and a variety of other things. But I kind of feel like we should start with the creation story Um, because it's interesting how many people from that organizational phone call are still in the industry and have been relatively high profile uh, with the College Crypto Network. So we met back in, what was it, 2014, 2013. maybe late 2013? Yeah. Uh, it was early. Um, but you started at, um, you know, basically running the Stanford Bitcoin or Crypto Club, uh, and now we're here. Uh, and I've done many, many other random things. But yeah. Um, for starters, why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about your backstory and, and evolution in the industry before we get into CoinList? Uh, coin
1: yeah, sure thing. So uh, I started in the industry uh, loosely, at least back in 2012 and uh, 2013, and was one of the folks that started the Stanford Bitcoin group back in those days, uh, which was led by Balaji Srinivasan, now the CTO of Coinbase. Um, but at that point, a Stanford professor who was teaching us and convinced a group of us that Bitcoin was going to be meaningful and uh, and we should pay attention to it. So a group of us, seven of us students. And and Vijay Pandey, mm-hmm. um, who's now a uh, professor and uh, an investor in Andreessen Horowitz, uh, started the Stanford Bitcoin group mm-hmm. and began to do some research and build some cool projects and, and do some advocacy work. Uh, and at some point very early, early on in our life cycle, connected with uh, the MIT Bitcoin Club,
0: or whatever it was, is that From what it was the called? College Crypto Network, I think. Right, right? through the whatever, college. Whatever the first, I, now it's the Blockchain Education Network. That's it's right. College Crypto Network. It was, I think on that first call, it was you, me... I don't know why I was on, by the way, because I had I had skipped on MIT's Sloan, I had deferred my offer, but yeah. I knew Dan Elitzer, who's Ellitzer. now at IDO yep. and their fund. Um, and Jeremy Gardner, who now has uh, he was one of the co-founders of Augur and 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 now Awesome on the Ventures. Phone called awesome Ventures yeah. Um yeah. Right. just a motley crew yeah. on that first phone call. And and I was sitting here as the only non student saying, I don't know why I was invited to this, but it's nice it's nice to meet you a lot guys. Of fun. Yeah. <laughs> one of the earliest connections, um, yeah. And then that all obviously, uh, you know, uh, sprung up pretty quickly and into a, a number of different universities. Um, but you're in Stanford, so you, you get to meet Balaji. Um That's about as great a connection as you can have to, to everybody in the industry, especially starting out. When did you start working with Naval?
1: Yeah. So I ended up leaving school and started a company not at all in the crypto space called mm-hmm. Sidewire in the political media space uh, and ran that for a few years. Um, and then as that was wrapping up, this was mid-2017. Mm-hmm. CoinList was getting started. And the story with CoinList is that uh, it was originally a collaboration between AngelList, which Naval founded, uh, and Protocol Labs, who builds Filecoin, among other things. And, uh, and they were working together to build this platform for the Filecoin token sale, because mm-hmm. there needed to be a place where people could go through compliance and make investments and receive uh, their Filecoin SAFs and, and eventually tokens. And so they created this thing called CoinList. Mm-hmm. And then at some point in the process, realized it was a lot of work. Every token issuer is gonna need the exact same set of services, so that should be a new company. Uh, and so with the, the rest of the founding uh, team at CoinList, uh, I kind of came in there as, as one of the founders uh, to get this new independent company, CoinList started out of that collaboration between Angelist and Protocol Labs. Uh, and I, I got involved there because I knew a lot of the Angelist folks um, just from being in, in the valley and, and, uh, and dealing with different people. I knew the Protocol Labs team, uh, and, uh, and so it was natural to come over and start working on that collaboration. Was that the first
0: SAFT? It was not
1: the first SAFT, it was the first really big publicly known SAFT.
0: Because I remember, um, the SAFT paper was authored by, um, That's right. Marcus Santori, who yeah. was the representative for Protocol Labs at that point, um, and won, yeah. and they presented it at consensus. Um, and then a few months later was, was this initial sale. But I didn't know if anyone had actually used that documentation there after it was few, presented. Yeah, or, or, there
1: are a few architects of the SAFT. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Polychain Capital was doing a lot of work with that general concept. Mm-hmm. Um, Cooley, obviously, where Marco was, uh, was doing a lot of work there. Protocol Labs uh, contributed a ton. And they ended up launching, yet yeah, a SAFT project yep. website, an idea that uh, formalized it a little bit further. But the idea of selling pre-functional tokens in a network as a security uh, had been kicking around for a few months before that
0: mm-hmm. so uh whether they were first or, or large certainly the most high profile yeah um, that's right and talk a little bit about that process because from you know i'd known Juan and the protocol labs guys again for for years yeah. uh, uh both individually and then as an investor at, at dcg and um my general sense was they tried to make it as inclusive as possible, um, but it wasn't the perfect rollout as, as any like first yep. iteration is. So, so talk a little bit about the sale, some of the design goals um, with CoinList and, and how it was actually going to facilitate these transactions, and then that auction um, that, that took place during the public component of this.
1: Yeah. I, I think the most important, the number one priority for a protocol labs, which I actually think was sounds obvious now, but was very forward thinking in mid 2017 mm-hmm. was compliance above all, how can we make sure that what we're doing here is not going to cause issues for us in a year or two years or five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a lot of what, you know, we kind of built Coinless to do early on was, uh, was support that. Now, obviously, a lot of teams are saying that, but in 2017, it felt much more like a cash grab for a lot of these token sales, get as much money as possible you know, we'll figure out the consequences later, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And Protocol Labs went and said, we're really going to care about this because we're trying to build a generational company here. And there's not a lot of things that could really kick us off that track. Mm-hmm. But one thing is compliance issues and legal issues. Yep. So a lot of the work there was around uh, who is allowed to invest in this offering, how can you diligence whether or not those folks are actually allowed mm-hmm. to invest in the offering that they are who they say they are, that they're accredited, whatever the criteria might be. And that's a lot of what that core Um, coinless platform was built to do. And then once you get past all of that work, the make sure this thing is legal work, Mm -hmm. the next step is how do we ensure the best outcome here for everyone involved? Um, And that's not just measured, although certainly Filecoin scores highly on this metric, not just measured in terms of dollars raised, right? Mm -hmm. But also inclusivity of the network sale. So uh, one of their big goals was we want as many people as possible to be stakeholders on this network from day one. So how can we do that? And, uh, and so the way they ended up structuring it was as this auction, uh, effectively, which serves as a price discovery mechanism, where they went and said, most likely, everyone that wants to invest in this token sale and mm-hmm. is qualified to do so legally will have a chance to, which ended up being uh, accurate in the way that their sale ran. And there'll be a price discovery process to figure out what the market will support for this asset uh, during the during the sale. But they did something really smart. And there were some some technical hiccups along the way. But they did something really smart, which was... When you do an auction, there's a lot of different factors to balance. And one of them is that uh, you don't want uh, the fastest people to click on the page to be the ones that get the best price for only the reason that they were the fastest to click on the page. Uh, And that that just doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make it fair. And -hmm. they were aiming for the most fair and equitable distribution of tokens possible. And so what they ended up doing was over a chunk of the first period of the sale, a certain number of hours, all of the investors got averaged in at the same price. So if you kept investing after that initial period, if you didn't make an investment at the beginning, then yes, you had a higher price to pay. The, the market kind of found its, its total price that it could support. But at the beginning, it didn't matter whether you clicked fast or even if you were an hour late to the sale or a few hours mm-hmm. late, um, you, everyone got averaged in during that period at the exact same price. Uh, so it, it rewarded early contributors in a way which shows support of the network. Uh, but it did not do so in a way that was kind of, uh, perverse and relative to just people's clicking ability. It was, did you commit early enough? If so, you get a better price. And last of all, and I think this is something that, you know, Masari is doing amazing work on, they were transparent about all of that Mm -hmm. and they published the economic model of the sale in advance. They told people how it was going to work. They were really communicative about that whole process, which is something that we still encourage our clients to do is that you, you have to be open about these things. No one knows today what the absolute best way to run a sale is from any number of perspectives. But if you do your absolute best and then you communicate that really clearly to everyone that might be involved in the sale, that's the most important thing that you can do.
0: Yeah, and uh, so I mean, full disclosure, I was an investor in the advisor sale and, and and you know, happy supporter of, of, of them and, and the team. And I actually wrote, uh, I think, a few thousand words on why I thought I was like the first ethical like token sale um, that I'd seen, and 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 you know, one of the reasons I wanted to participate um, just almost on pure principle, um, because they locked up investors with vesting schedules. Um, they had this very um, uh, clearly laid out, and hypothetically, these are all savvy investors because they're accredited. So you shouldn't have the same concerns if you were doing uh, a token sale direct to retail, where you know you're potentially. Um, dumping on unsuspecting investors that are not really paying attention or dotting the i's crossing the t's. So there was this time element that locked people up. There was the um, the savvy of the of the investors, and then I think uh, there was a chunk of it that was uh, it looked more credible because the platform had been built um, from both Protocol Labs, but then AngelList, which has done this accreditation in the past, and that, that joint venture was very interesting. So that's that disclaimer out of the way. Um, You know, I I think I'll define Protocol Labs because we kind of skipped over that. I think many people might know, Mm -hmm. but some might know it as Filecoin. Some people might know IPFS, uh, but they might not know the interrelation. So Protocol Labs is the company that created IPFS, which is a decentralized storage network um, that that many of the um, protocol teams have used historically to save data uh, and files in a decentralized way. Filecoin was supposed to be the... um, the scarce digital asset that could secure that decentralized storage network, and it was released after many people had used IPFS. So, um, I bring that up both to be a little bit clearer because we just threw around like a few different entity names and one and Evolve, you know, uh, whatever. But I also think um, it's important because what you saw with uh, the Filecoin sale is people buying into a resource that they believed was securing an already existing network that was in the wild. So, even if Filecoin itself was delivered as a security via the SAFT offering because that network and that mechanism to secure IPFS was not uh, yet built. Uh, the un- some of the underlying pieces had already been built and 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 relied for a while.
1: And actually, on that, by the way, I yeah. remember I saw Juan give a talk about IPFS, the Interplanetary File System, is, is what that uh, stands for, which is a great mm-hmm. name, back in, I think it must have been 2014. Yes. He's, he'd He's been working on IPFS a for a long time. Mm-hmm. Before this concept of tokens Tokens. as these network security functions outside of really just Bitcoin Mm -hmm. existed. And so that was another thing for that sale that gave a lot of people a lot of confidence was that this technology had been in the wild for years Mm -hmm. and been developed for years without any sort of direct profit motive behind it for a long time. He was Mm -hmm. building this technology, trying to make it work and then as this idea of a token, a protocol token came up, it happened to apply really neatly to this technology that he and the team had already built a protocol labs, and that's something else that gave people a lot of confidence in the project. There was years of development work behind it, and it was just a really good fit for this token model. Yeah.
0: I, I wanna, I mean, we're probably towing the line a little bit. I wanna, I wanna step back uh, from coming across as if we're, we're just shilling a specific project. <laughs> but the reason I gave that background, you know, A, the disclosure, but, the, but B, the project background, I feel like the other teams that you guys have taken on for um, token sales, have all fit a similar definition, uh, at least that I can tell, where some core components of the product have been built. There's both social and technical proof um, in the validity of these systems. And this is one of the final pieces to the puzzle that you guys are are helping with. So what is your um, methodology for actually accepting projects under the CoinList platform? given how unclear the regulatory regime, especially in the U.S. is, and you're a Silicon Valley-based company.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's an important question. So when we look at a project, and I should emphasize, we don't offer investment advice. I'm not doing that right now. And all of these projects are incredibly early stage. The whole industry is, let alone individual projects, Mm -hmm. and are incredibly risky investments to invest in. So we just do our best to work with good customers on the token project side. There are some things that I think every investor should look at when they're considering a token sale, and there's some of the same things that we think about generally when we're thinking about who's a good customer for us. Um, there's basic criteria that you evaluate if you're evaluating any startup, let alone a token startup. So is it a strong team? Does the product make sense? Is it a good product? Are they attacking a big market? Does the you know market can it support what they're going after? Uh, and do the deal terms make sense? Are these valuations, uh, where, where do they land relative to the market? Um, So those are pretty standard evaluation functions for any type of early-stage investment. Beyond that, there's really two things we look at, and and the latter touches on what you mentioned. The first is the token economic model. And uh, that means a lot of things. We could spend hours unpacking that term. Um, But at its core for us, two things that I think about are, one, uh, will this token, if the product is successful, if the network is successful, will the token accrue value in the long term, Mm -hmm. which would make it a good investment? And two... Uh, are the incentives aligned on this network with this token? Are the, the good actors, the necessary parties, appropriately incentivized to behave well in the network? And then on the flip side, are potential bad actors appropriately disincentivized from attacking the network? So when we think about token economics, that's what that sums up to, both will it accrue value if successful? And then two, are the incentives aligned properly? And then the last piece is the legal and regulatory structure. If you're evaluating a a seed stage investment, equity investment in the company, they're not doing anything innovative with their legal structuring, most likely. It's a pretty vanilla process at this point. To your point, uh, the regulatory environment, but also just the legal standards in this space are relatively immature. And so you really have to think about how they're structuring things and if it makes sense. What we've gotten comfortable with is this idea that all of the token issuances, token sales, that have used the coinless platform publicly, have been conducted as offerings of securities. And that's what we can get comfortable with. That's kind of our most conservative, safest stance. That does not mean that those tokens will always be securities. Some of them, like Filecoin, intend to become non-securities at some point in the future, but they're offering it or offering a document as a security upfront in the offering. Some of them may sit, stay securities forever, mm-hmm. Uh, But some of them may may try and transition out. Um, Will you be
0: part of that transition, by the way? Right. So so I executed the Filecoin documents and I have the SAFT. At some point in the next year or so, those will start to be delivered.
1: Is your role complete?
0: Is this on the Protocol Labs team now? to manage that transition, or are you still part of that process?
1: Yeah, so every uh, customer is a case-by-case uh, situation for any given service that we offer, but one of the things we do help with is distributions of tokens. Mm-hmm. So for some of the the projects uh, that have worked with CoinList that have already distributed their tokens, unlike Filecoin, which is not yet. It's only like a half dozen, right? Yeah. So far? Yeah. So it's it's
0: Filecoin complete, Blockstack complete. Yeah, props, props, origin, you
1: now? trust token, uh, and then Ocean. Uh, most recently. And and those are the public ones. We've also privately worked with dozens and dozens of issuers, but mm-hmm. publicly those are the, the ones that have been on the website. Uh, and, and, and,
0: and this is an important nuance that I know you say intentionally uh, at, at First Listen people might not recognize, but you are very consciously saying issuers. Yes. Because um, we're separating the token sale uh, or the token generation events, which is legal jargon for oops, maybe this wasn't a compliant offering, and the actual offering and issuance of a bona fide security in the form of the SAFT instrument.
1: That's right, yeah. So all of these projects, again, that have worked with us issued securities and used the Coinless Technology Platform to facilitate uh, parts of that transaction process. And so we use the word issuers because that is what they're doing. And in in the rest of the world, the non-token world, that's the most common word that you use when you talk about someone that is selling a security in some way. So important for us just to to reinforce that terminology with people. And I think it helps even talking to regulators and Mm -hmm. folks in government when you can be clear that you're actually doing things the right
0: way from the beginning. Do we We still still call call them SAFs, or or are they now deferred distribution distribution agreements? Some people call them
1: SAFs, some people call them different things. I think what's interesting, though, is that, to that question, and what Ryan's getting at is, we've now seen a lot of documents that look very similar but have different names at the top of them. Mm -hmm. The concept that was behind the SAF has lasted this is now a year yeah. and a half, almost two years old. And it's this idea that for a network whose tokens have not launched yet, uh, you can sell a piece of paper as a security that gives the people a right at some point to get tokens in the future. Um, and a SAP is a simple agreement for future tokens modeled after the, the Y Combinator, SAFE, simple agreement for future equity. There's different distribution agreements. There's a million different words that you can, you can use to describe it. But at the end of the day, this idea that I can sell you a piece of paper that will, you know, it'll be a securities offering, regulated, registered, or exempted securities offering. And then at some point, you'll get tokens out the other end. Mm-hmm. Uh, has lasted for a year and a half or two years, which really points towards uh, how, how thoughtful they were in structuring those early deals.
0: Um, as you think about the market going forward, you're structured now to do securities tokens. We haven't seen them. You can argue that SAFTs or, or their ilk are securities, which they are. Yep. But those aren't securities tokens. Um, have you seen anything worth investing in on the security token side, or are you very happy to just have the Templums, the T T0s of the world, some of the other you know, secure ties, some of the other security token-specific vendors um, take that on because you fit in this middle market right now where a lot of people are going to need help?
1: Yes, this is a really interesting discussion. I'm, I'm glad you called this out. The terminology has been very inconsistent across the industry. You don't so say. I've had people, I know. <laughs> we've certainly had people at CoinList come to us and say, uh, you guys haven't done any securities token offerings. When are you going to start doing securities token offerings? And we've had people come to us and say, CoinList has only done securities tokens. When are you going to do a non securities token offering? Those are clearly inconsistent. So there's yes. something wrong here with the terminology. and. And I I just want to emphasize the way that you said it there, which I think is really important. My view, I I see it the same way. A securities token is a token that will always be a security. It is by definition a security. It's not changing. The most common example of these that you hear about are these asset-backed tokens, so Mm equity-backed tokens, real estate-backed tokens that are intended to always be securities. What I view that we've done so far um, at Coinless, the customers we've worked with, what they've done is uh, they have sold securities that represent tokens in the future, which are not necessarily securities tokens. It's a securities transaction representing what is potentially a non-securities token. I know that's a mouthful, um, but I think an important distinction to draw. My thesis on this, and just a a personal view here, is that asset-backed tokens, so tokens, again, backed by equity or backed by uh, real estate or something like that, are a little ways off. I do not see today the investor demand for securities tokens, for asset-backed tokens, in a meaningful Mm way. I would agree with that. What I do think is interesting is that there's an in-between state that I think has not been fully explored, but people are starting to hit on, uh, which are non-asset-backed securities tokens, and uh, and so a couple examples of this, and then I'll explain what I mean by that. <laughs> one that's that's uh, you know still going and, and going strong is uh, is a company called BlocksRoute, uh, which is really interesting. We can talk about them. Uh, another one, probably the one the one in this category that most people it's know.
0: Same Yep, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cornell the, professor.
1: The one that most people know that <laughs> falls in this category, uh, unfortunately, is, is Basis and their shares token in the Basis ecosystem. Not mm-hmm. the stablecoin, but the shares yep. token. Basis now uh, has wound down operations, unfortunately. Um, but it is the most well-known in this category.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I like to call these profit tokens. So they're tokens where it is a security and will always be a security. But rather than being backed by some real-world assets, some physical world asset like equity or real estate, It's backed by the value of the token network in some way. And so what's interesting about these types of tokens for me, these profit tokens, uh, (laughs) as I call them, but certainly open to to better names, uh, is that they're securities. So they force securities token infrastructure to be built. You have to build exchanges and issuance platforms and compliance solutions to support them because they're different from at least these intended to be non-securities tokens that have Mm -hmm. previously come out. But... What's interesting about them is that their risk-reward profile looks a lot more like a protocol token or a network token than it does like an equity token or a real estate token.
0: We, we So we've just, in terms of like taxonomy rules, broken all of them. All of Because them. you just said seven different things. Away. I know. Um, yeah. When you say profit tokens, are you thinking, um, some people call them work tokens, right? So so Augur's rep, you yep. would stake in order to earn network fees, so I don't are these
1: they're distinct? They're distinct, and the As you the them. reason they're distinct is when I say profit tokens, I'm talking about tokens that are intended to always be securities. And Augur mm-hmm. is not intended to be a security, right? Yep. So I put Augur in the protocol or network token bucket, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of these token sales and ICOs over the past couple of years have been. Uh, is these tokens that are intended to be non-securities, but earn value, accrue value based on the activity on the network that is happening, yep. right? Work tokens, staking tokens all fall into this category. I'm proposing profit tokens as maybe a step beyond that where they similarly earn value <clears throat> from activity on the network, they scale with the network value, but they are intended to be securities through and through, no matter what. And what's interesting is the reason those two sound so similar is that they both earn value from network activity, mm-hmm. right? Which means that an investor who would invest in one is likely to want to invest in a different one. And we saw that with Basis. Basis went and raised over $100 million from a lot of the same investors that have been investing in protocol tokens, network tokens from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so it's a similar type of investor. And so this in-between profit token state, if done well, uh, which I hope it is, could be kind of a bridge where... Without needing to go and find new investors for the space, the same investors are interested in them. Mm-hmm. But it will force the space to build out the security token infrastructure. And once that security token infrastructure five is, five years
0: from now, it's a different story. Then it's a different
1: story about attracting investor interest in, uh, in you know, real estate or equity-backed tokens.
0: I'm not sure if everybody is completely lost at this point because you tough and time. I are aliens yeah. and and we've been in the weeds and we've we've done all this jargon and we can kind of you know oh, yeah. uh, ad lib this. Um, So for those that don't have this rap genius living in their brain for nerdy crypto stuff, um, how does someone coming to CoinList actually learn what they're getting into, right? Both historical assets that have been listed and the current offering. You're going to have the basic documentation, but is there any broader library or standardization that you guys are working on with respect to the um, the materials that are available to the folks that are, are parsing these,
1: yeah. So we uh, we work with the issuers uh, that you know use our platform to create these deal pages, usually content by them mm-hmm. that describes their project in depth. And there's a lot of commonalities across those, but it is not, uh, at least not yet, standardized in you know a a kind of absolutely consistent way. And I think part of the point there is that. Um, a little bit intentional. There are some pieces that every token project should uh, talk about, that people should be informed Mm -hmm. about when they're investing in a project like that. And again, that's things like, who is the team? What are their backgrounds? What are the investment terms? You know, what what have you done so far? What are the proof points? But then there are some things that make sense to talk about for some projects and not others. And so we do want to make sure we give that flexibility to the token issuers to write about what they think is relevant. Um, and obviously, things that everyone legally is comfortable with having on those pages. But we try and have pretty thorough pages on our platform that really describe what's happening. And then lots of documentation to back it up uh, from the issuers about what the token sale terms are and what they're doing and, and how they plan to proceed.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and I think the, the materials that have traditionally been on CoinList have been pretty polished, uh, I'm, certainly by industry standards. That's a ridiculously low bar, but I'll give, <laughs> yeah, I'll give, I'll give, you, I'll give you guys a little bit of credit. It. Um And we were actually very intentional when we thought about our own disclosure forms to start with extremely remedial disclosures, just so we didn't have this um, wild inconsistency with the quality of everything else, right? If, If you ask a coinless project for the equivalent of like a business description and risk factors, you're gonna get something like IPO quality, right, right in hope. the equities yeah. realm, uh, or at least a step much, much closer to it than what you would get from someone just hanging a shingle trying to do a crowd sale um, with with very limited oversight. So um, I think that intersection, you know, we, we we start with the bare bones and can work our way up. You guys and, and, and others that are, are trying to professionalize this, I think, you know, uh, try, try to set the standard for um, what could one of these token offerings look like. Um, which I think are, are, we'll meet in the middle at some point, uh, but yeah. the industry is still quite a ways away from that. And it.
1: one thing that we're starting to, to see from token projects that use the Coinless platform that moves towards meeting in the middle is open Q&A webinars. Re- you know, recently, uh, we've done webinars where investors or advisors in the projects uh, interview them and these projects you know, host these webinars and, and can have uh, the world exposed to some real back and forth with them between people that are familiar with the project and then open QA, being able to answer questions. I do think that transparency piece is so important for these projects. And especially going forward, early days of token sales, uh, and again, this is something I think some of our early customers did a great job of, it was not really necessary to be incredibly transparent in the early days. Oh, yeah. It was just money crazy. was flying around. Exactly. But they went and did it anyway. And they said, you know, we're hosting webinars, we're being open about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and now I think increasingly, which is great for the industry, the incentives are aligning, and now it's much harder to raise money if you're not transparent. And so you you really need to be good and transparent, uh, mm-hmm. not just you know out there with with good marketing at this point.
0: Um, how do you think about the limit of what's mandatory as, as a disclosure? Because uh, it strikes me that um, with private deals, there's always going to be bespoke negotiations, and there's going to be other uh, agreements that are struck with the, the maybe the token creating entity versus the token. Um, What level of detail do you think should be applied when you know that many people that come in through the CoinList offering, they're gonna have different terms than the Andreessen's of the world and the Polychain's of the world Mm -hmm. that actually got them to this point. And and frankly, I believe um, a large reason that they're even in the running to be listed on CoinList because you guys like to to see some social proof from uh, what you call legitimate investors uh, or or high profile investors that have uh, actually made a bet. Um, It's important to note that there's a massive difference between the terms that they get and whoever's coming in next. What Uh, level is appropriate to disclose um, and and how can you guys start to push the envelope there?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's really two levels of disclosures for token issuers that they need to think about. One is just legal requirements and when they're Mm -hmm. selling securities. There are a whole bunch of requirements about what you need to disclose, how you need to frame it. Securities law ultimately is all about disclosures and being open about things. And so working with great counsel, and and uh, and we have opinions on this too, obviously, there's a bunch of things they have to disclose in a purchase member memorandum or the term sheet for the deal or anything like that. So that's the baseline. That's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're not being compliant. Mm-hmm. And so that there's that. The second side is, what is your duty to inform investors about? Right? And I think this is maybe the more interesting question here. What should you actually be saying to people? And I, I think there's a, a lot of information, again, it's specific to every issuer, because at some level, I think the most important things to tell investors are the things that they would not otherwise assume, right? So you can go out and you can make all sorts of disclosures about things that are plainly obvious about your project, and you should do so. But that doesn't really add a lot of value to the investors. What you should be doing is going out and disclosing what is not obvious about the project Mm -hmm. and and making sure investors are aware of the total facts and circumstances surrounding the offering um, before you do that. So yeah, I do think things like, what are the previous terms? What does the distribution of tokens look like so far? Who owns what and how is that going to change going forward? How is inflation going to affect the network? If you buy this much now in 2050, what will that look like? And so all of those questions... Um, again, some may apply more than, than others for different mm-hmm. networks, uh, but it's about what's unusual about your project that investors would not assume or wouldn't be able to easily kind of intuit from just basically reading about your project. Um, and I think one really interesting one of on that, just to give a specific example, mm-hmm. is uh, inflation schedules and, and kind of network growth yep. schedules. In some cases, it's really simple. And you can write one sentence and say, you know, Grin is going to grow at 1% every year, and that's, that's the way it is. And that's all you need to say because mm-hmm. that's that's a, some of it. Now, it would also be nice to maybe put some graphs and models and help people understand what that means for them practically, but you fully disclosed it. Some networks have way more confusing inflation schedules or uh, potentially can even modify it at their own will later. And those sorts of things are really important because those impact what the investor is actually investing in and what their stake is going to be. Uh, at some point in the future. So all of that is really important to disclose.
0: You know, I asked about the post-sale support that you guys will offer. What we didn't touch on is whether you will help with listing. Mm-hmm. And this is a multi-million dollar, sometimes billion dollar question for some of these uh, projects and their assets. How do you go from uh, private sale or ICO to a liquid market on a Binance, on a Coinbase Pro, et et cetera. And traditionally, an entity like CoinList would be serving as the investment bank that's actually facilitating that process in those conversations. It's not clear in this industry that the same is necessarily true. Um, Will you guys touch those conversations? Is there a dividing line? If not you, is it back on the projects? Or is there another type of service provider that's going to have to step in the middle?
1: Uh, We are, we're actively evaluating exactly what our role should be in that right now. I think it's important to note that there is a big difference between traditional equities uh, and crypto when you talk about listing, which is in traditional equities, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but generally you see the ticker for a company on a single exchange. Something is NASDAQ listed or New York Stock Exchange listed or listed on a commodities exchange, but it's, it's on one place. Now... Of course, behind the scenes, they're trading between all these exchanges, but the listing happens in a single a single trading venue, and uh, and that's not true in crypto. Bitcoin- I would I would
0: argue that it, it probably will be though. So whether it's a central exchange or a decentralized order book with you know kind of pool global liquidity, I have to imagine that's where we're ultimately going to go. The question is, uh, just like Nasdaq gets some listings and. Nice. He gets others, and then the international exchange is same thing. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me that Binance would win one asset, or, or sorry, it it doesn't make sense that you'd have Binance and Coinbase Pro list the same asset. It does make sense that you'd have one win a coinless project versus the other, which would win a. I don't know, Templum project. You yeah. know what I mean? Right? So so I'm trying I, to understand I'm, how, I'm, how you think about the next five years.
1: Right. I'm willing to believe that, certainly. I don't have as much conviction on that point. I think it's possible that this exchange landscape stays fragmented for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And particularly over the next five years, I think it's unlikely that we will see a lot of projects move to single exchange listing models. And I think... A lot of the the order book pooling uh, which is a big concept there the kind of especially decentralized order book pooling um, I don't think is going to be totally unified on on a short to midterm time scale I think it's right sort of now possible. it's going to be the, the
0: prime brokers that are aggregating and wouldn't you know it all of our centralized exchanges are actually forming a decentralized asset yes exactly <laughs> what a <coincidence. laughs> a decentralized order book right. because liquidity is so fragmented that's right um, uh, really interesting uh, how, how you think about you know what's what's next. What um, what do you think people are not aware of right now, given where we are in the market cycle regarding token sales? Because I think in the U.S. there there's kind of like an ICOs are dead mm-hmm. mentality and and vibe. There's a ton of private placement activity. Um, you guys sit exactly in the middle. And Ocean, I believe, was the first. That you've done in a while nine months, yeah. 12 months almost, right? So, um, is that an outlier, or like no. what? what's what should we expect for 2019, 2020 in the US in particular? Knowing that you know Binance has its launch pad, and you're, you're going to be able to, to do things in Hong Kong and Singapore and, right. and other jurisdictions that you can't do in the US, but but with, within the US. What will that look like in the next couple of years? It's a really, really interesting one. I think a,
1: a bunch of answers to that. One is, I do think the token sale landscape is changing mm-hmm. and we're going to see it look more and more like what traditional early stage venture capital looks like, Well, rather than a single private sale and then a big public token sale or uh, you know, one private sale and nothing else, we're going to see kind of a sequence of private raises as the issuer makes progress. And then at some point an event where they sell it out to the the public for some definition of public. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that public sale will be less and less focused on dollars raised and more about people reached. And the dollars raised will happen in the earlier private sales. It'll be more about access and less about dollars. So I do think that's changing in the token sale landscape.
0: what I'll say in terms of. I think the, that's the, a very rosy outlook, but I'll, 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 let it, I'll let it go. I think over the long term, we'll, <laughs> we'll see that
1: kind of movement happen towards sequence private raises. Um, I think in terms of the, the environment and where we are in the cycle, I remember back in, in 2013, uh, crypto had a huge run up, really, Bitcoin really at that point had a huge run up, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then it crashed. And in 2014, for basically the whole year, I don't know how you felt, but. I felt like everyone was moping around and upset and just not happy with crypto. And then in 2015, the price still hadn't gone back up. In fact, it was right around where it was in 2014 for most of the year. The bleeding just stopped. The bleeding stopped, and you know. it started to feel really positive. And 2015 felt generative and exciting, and people mm-hmm. were building things. And in 2016, we started to see the prices run back up again. I feel like this time, the, the 2014 mopey cycle... Yes. Was way shorter. Like, I felt like that was, for kind of the back half of last year, maybe into January, I am incredibly excited today mm-hmm. about everything that's ha- I feel like a new little project, even if it's just a side thing, I feel like I hear about something new every day that's yeah, in- it, exciting and interesting. The, the, the pace is insane. The pace is insane. And uh, price hasn't really moved that much. We broke 4000 on Bitcoin, which is very exciting for a lot of people, but not where it was. And, uh, and so my feeling is that the, the kind of 2014 equivalent bad period, upset period, was pretty compressed this cycle. That's not to say that the 2015 2015s period is going to be compressed as well. I think it might last a while. But mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, whether or not prices move, exciting things are happening, people are really positive. What a lot of issuers told us la- at the end of last year, because um, so a lot of people were planning sales in Q3, Q4 last year. Mm-hmm. They canceled them. They delayed them. And what they told us was, we're not going to do this right now. We're just going to wait for the market to stabilize. We don't need a crazy bull market again. We just want a little bit of stability, which makes sense. Right after a crash is a bad time to go and ask people for money. And uh, and so what I'm... And then
0: that, by the way, that's not just true on the token side. That's true on no. the equity side, too. We were, we were certainly in that yeah. boat and, and and were able to string out a couple extra quarters before... That's right. Yeah, and so what I
1: feel... and. That, what they were telling us has turned out to be true. You know, just speaking from what we can see internally at CoinList, our pipeline is crazy for this year. There's a ton Mm -hmm. of people conducting sales. And it's, everyone is really coming back and saying, it wasn't that we needed a bull market. We just needed stability. It feels a little more stable now. The the market feels positive. Are we going to see a bunch of $200 million token sales this year? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But what we will see is a bunch more issuers going out and beginning to offer these, these assets to a larger audience and try to raise money. And then I also think a lot of private placement activity, um, behind the scenes as well.
0: So that, that might be a good place to, to kind of wrap up with a final question. Um, you guys are talking about mostly the the primary sales, the the first or maybe second sales in, in, in some cases, what we haven't talked about is this wall of illiquid 2017 SAFs that are going to have to hit the market at some point, and you know the market is stabilized. Do they start coming now? Um, what what type of disruption do you expect from uh, just chaotic selling of people that want liquidity, um, and you know might have a mandate uh, and, and a fiduciary responsibility to get liquidity um, on some of these investments that they know if they can just get their money back, they're in good shape. Um, does, does all that get absorbed and, and take away from some of the other exciting primary placements, or do you kind of view those as two distinct markets right now?
1: I think they're distinct-related, but, but distinct markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do think there are, when these start to hit the market, these tokens finally get liquid, um, there, are, there are good and there are bad ways to do that uh, for these issuers to, to kind of help get the secondary market going. Uh, two factors that I would consider is, one, how they structured it, Back when they initially offered the SAFs, you pointed out one thing, but Filecoin and a bunch of other projects is they put vesting on these SAFs, and a lot of them, investors get discounts. If they took longer vesting periods, um, and so that obviously is an enormous help. If someone has five million dollars of some asset that they bought, and you know they can they don't get it until three years later, and it's hap- It's coming to them in stages over three years. That obviously will mm-hmm. dramatically reduce any selling pressure, even if it is a fiduciary duty of theirs to to go and execute those trades. They just can't do it all at once. Uh, And so that's one thing, how they structured it earlier. And then the second is what they do to actually get it liquid in the early days. Um, What you see for a lot of assets out in the world that move from illiquid to liquid uh, or are just generally illiquid assets is they don't just throw these assets up on a order book and say, everyone trade, let's try and find a price. They run more thoughtful processes, So whether that's an auction process Mm -hmm. or kind of a staged liquidity process, I think we'll see a lot of issuers experimenting um, with with these sorts of things. Uh, And it would just be unusual to see this stuff go crazy. You look at sometimes on, uh, and without trying to name names here, on some of the big exchanges when they've put new assets on and it's been surprising in some way to people, um, prices have swung violently.
0: Well, Well, I'd say more recently... recently. um, that, oh. that effect has been very muted, More which which mm-hmm. makes, makes me believe, to your point, point um, at least for the token, token assets, right. I would be very um, conservative in my, my expectations for or a comeback. If, if for no other reason, reason, then there's, there's just so, so much, much that has to be absorbed yes. from the private placements. No, yeah. placements. no that I agree with um, I'm just Maybe saying, not Bitcoin and Ether right. uh, uh, in that bucket as much, um, because, because institutions, institutions will probably float to those first. Right. But... Um, but but for for everything everything else, there's just just, there's I mean there's billions billions and billions of dollars of this crap crap, and a lot of it's crap. crap. A (laughs) lot of it's crap. I agree with that.
1: I'm more thinking of when there have been forks in the past of Bitcoin or something and they've gone up on exchanges, prices swung wildly. And that's a function of just not being thoughtful about how you roll out new assets. Mm -hmm. And so I think exchanges and issuers alike will have to be thoughtful. But I also agree there's a lot of bad stuff out there that's locked up illiquid right now, and it's gonna get liquid at some point. And, and the markets need to deal with that appropriately. Uh, it may mean that investors lose money because they invested in bad projects. Uh, it may mean uh, that exchanges don't list certain assets. We'll see what happens, but um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about those projects that are really, genuinely, obviously high quality, mm-hmm. being able to have successful listing processes if structured thoughtfully, and beginning to get liquidity to these early investors who deserve it and have held tokens for a long time. Andy, always a pleasure. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Likewise. One of the good
0: guys trying to clean up some of the excesses from 2017 and do things the right way in the 2.0. Guys, if your brackets aren't busted, they probably will be shortly. Enjoy the tournaments, and we'll see you again next week. Peace. Thank you.